Amen. Please remain standing and hear the words of our Lord. I thought the hymn was appropriate as we come now to the end of John and the story between Jesus and Peter. Give your attention now to John chapter 21, verses 15 to the end of the book. These are the words of God. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands And another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And amen. These are the words of God. Let's ask his blessing. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the gospel of John. Thank you for giving us this gospel through our brother. Thank you for these words and for the word of God, our Lord Jesus, who is the good news. As we conclude this gospel, grant faith to the preacher and to the hearers, these souls you love. Do so to the glory of your gracious name, even Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Well, that's the end of the Gospel of John. It begins with these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. First three verses of the beginning of the book. Jesus was there. That's John's point. Jesus was there in the beginning. He was the Word of God, and he is God. It was Jesus, the Word, then, that told Adam what to do. He spoke to Adam. He told Adam what to do. And having told Adam who he was and what he was called to, basically, God said to Adam, follow me. Follow me. Adam did not follow God. And in his fall, he thrust all mankind into sin and misery. And so, God, in his good timing, sent a second Adam, a man a new man, not from the line of Adam and yet from his line. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, we are told in Romans, or I'm sorry, in John 1, 14. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. This was the great do-over. And now where sin abounded, grace would abound much, much more. 
Paul, considering this, the difference between the two Adams, the two beginnings of mankind, the first and then the second, writes as he finishes his discourse on the difference between these two in Romans chapter 5. He says, therefore, as through one man's offense, that would be the first Adam, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. In other words, As a result of Adam's sin plunging all of humanity, all of you, all of us, into sin and misery and condemnation and the eternal holy wrath of God, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. In other words, through another covenant head, the new Adam, Jesus... Through his one righteous act, that is his obedience even to the the cross, even to death on the cross, which provided forgiveness for sins of all who would call upon him, and forgiveness of sins for all that he would die for and the Father would give to him, righteousness and justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, this this is where Paul wants to comment on this, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. We live in a world where we see the effects of sin all around. And we are the people, the people of God, who tell the people, tell everybody else around us, God's law says, you may not, and we have a long list of things in our culture, and God's word says you must, and we have a long list of things we should be telling our culture, and they aren't, or they are, They're not doing what God has said. They are doing what God has absolutely condemned. And we we, we still see a world around us full of condemnation, the fruit of condemnation. And Paul says, even so, even so, through one man's righteous act, this one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, he goes on, he says, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. That's why the law entered. God gave the law so everyone would see, it would become clear of how guilty we are. Not just in our conscience, which our conscience already bears witness of our failures, of our faults, of our our, our disassociation with the God that created us and and loves the world that he created, our rebellion against that. But, But then the law given to make it very clear of how far we have fallen, of how far we are away from his righteous standards. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace now reigns. Yes, it's true. God's righteous and holy law is is before all of us and before all of mankind. But when Jesus came, when Jesus came, and this is what John is is getting at, and in the story with Peter, it, it comes out so beautifully. When Jesus came, it was not condemnation that reigns. It was grace. It was grace that reigned. 
It was grace from a loving God who loved a sin-filled, dark world and sent his son to all who would hear that gospel news. Every dirty sinner who would hear that gospel news. To that, to that person who would hear it, grace reigns, grabs them, takes them out of darkness, takes them out of condemnation, takes them out of the slavery to their sin, and sets them free like they've never been free before, and sets them on a path and a course of eternal life. Now, one of the things that happens, though, for us Christians is on that path of eternal life, that glorious path of eternal life, as, as uh, um, Bunyan writes so often in Pilgrim's Progress, we wander off one way and then the other. We don't do all of the good works that God has called us to as we're reminded in our call to worship. We deny the Lord, as Peter did, maybe three times in actions and words. But grace reigns. See, if Jesus has you, he ain't letting go. If Jesus has you, he ain't letting go. Because grace reigns. Now you might feel as though it's the hound of heaven coming after you sometimes. But you need to understand, Jesus gets who he bought. And in the great do-over, in the great do-over for those who fall, time and time again, if Jesus has you, he ain't letting go. So grace reigns. And that's what I want, I want us to see. I want us to see that this is not simply a philosophical or theological truism. You know, it's just something that's true that really doesn't matter, have any effect on anybody's life. No, this is what makes the world tick. This is what, this is what makes the world keep going right now. This, this is the reason that God hasn't come right now and brought his final judgment. The reason he hasn't come and brought his final judgment is because he's still saving men and women. He's still building his kingdom here on earth. He's still, he's still, as Jesus reigns at God's right hand, allowing, allowing Jesus to stay there, stay there, son, until I make all the nations a footstool for your feet. And once they're all in obedience to you, then I will send you to take care of the final enemy, death. But until that time, the clock keeps ticking, and Jesus keeps on by his spirit and by his word going and saying over and over and over and over again, follow me. Follow me. Let's go. I'm taking the world. I'm granting eternal life. I'm forgiving sins. I'm setting crooked men straight. Come with me. Follow me. And that's what this gospel has been all about. It has the most practical ramifications for every sinner, and we are all sinners. Not only is it true for any sinner who turns to Christ for forgiveness and salvation, it is also true, let me say it, for you. It is true for every Christian, every day, for every sin, for every time we repent and return to God. It is ours. Jesus said, follow me at the beginning. All the way back at the beginning, to the very first man. And he says that every time any sinner comes to him at any time. The great do-over of Jesus has universal applications for the history of the world, for the future of the world, where it is going, and it has personal applications for you, just as it had for Peter. 
When, Jesus, when Peter denied Jesus those three times, John is careful to note in the setting that they're around these coals of fire. It was early morning, it was before, before dawn, and um, the, uh, the Jewish officials and authorities have gathered together illegally because trials are to take place in public during the day with um, witnesses being brought forth and being able to be questioned and, uh, and cross-examined. None of that takes place. But, but John wants to make this point as he's telling the story that the time that, that Peter denies Jesus three times, it's around a, a fire of coals. And now here in this passage, we have the second incident of the fire of coals. It was the first time that Peter had openly de- denied Christ. And now sharing breakfast with Jesus and the other disciples, these same disciples that Peter had earlier said that he was superior to in his devotion to Jesus. In Mark 14, verse 29, Jesus, Peter said to Jesus, even if all are made to stumble, probably pointing to the other disciples because Jesus said, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna stumble and fall away. And, and Peter says, even if all the rest of them are made to stumble, yet I will not be. <laughs> Sitting with some of those disciples now, around this fire, a fire that certainly would have reminded Peter of what he had done with regard to Jesus just days before. He is given the opportunity to restate his love and devotion. He's given the opportunity to be made right again with this uh, rabbi, this teacher, this risen Lord that he had been following for three years. And so three times near a fire coals, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Notice, though, that he doesn't say to him, Peter, very specifically, he says to him instead, Simon, which was Peter's name. Remember, Jesus had renamed him Peter or Cephas. He had renamed him the rock because the confession of faith that Peter had given, um, that upon, upon this confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, that would be that which we would build the church upon, that confession of faith. Not Peter because he's the great pope, but Peter because he made the first confession, clear confession of faith. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Yes, and I call you Peter because upon that rock, that confession, I will build my church. But here he doesn't call him Peter. It's like, it's like we're going to rewind here, Peter. We're going to start over again. In fact, I'm, I'm remembering that you're a Jonason. You're Simon Jonason. You're Simon son of Jonah. Three times he will call him Simon, son of Jonah, recalling another fish story, another story of a follower of God who had to repent. This was not a test of Peter's love as much as it was a gracious opportunity granted by Christ to try again. Many, many commentators, for years, there are two different words that are being used to describe love, agapao, or agape, agape, agapao, and phileo. And it is true that there's an emphasis in agapao of a devoted covenant, unconditional love, and that phileo is a, uh, is a more of a manifestation of brotherly love and kindness and fraternal um, loyalty. But the words are used interchangeably all the time. In fact, even, even uh, John in his own gospel, when he's referring to himself, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, uses those verbs interchangeably to describe himself. I think far too much is actually made of, of trying to, some will try to say that um, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Like unconditionally, covenantally, all the way. And Peter goes, basically saying, well, not quite that much, but you're a good guy. 
phileo is going to work out for you. I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'm not all the way there. I don't think that's what's going on. I don't, I don't, I don't think that's, because there's no rebuke from Jesus. There's no, there's, there's just simply the three times of asking him and the three responses that, that Peter is giving. And Peter's response is his opportunity to, re, to declare his faithfulness, um, his faith in and his faithfulness back towards Jesus. So remember, after Peter denied the Lord, um, he had repented. He, he went out and wept bitterly, we're told, in Matthew 26. So I, you know, I just ask all of us, how many times do you think Peter replayed that stumble over and over and over again in his mind? How many times do you think he wished he could have gone back to the beginning of his discipleship and faithfully follow Christ? How many times do you think he looked at John, the only disciple who was there who saw it happen, and knew John knew. John, who had allowed him, was, was the one who had the contact to get him into, into this enclosure in, where, where the Sanhedrin and the authorities were meeting. And then John would have witnessed, would have seen Peter's denial of Jesus. Three years, um, three years prior, Jesus had said to Peter, follow me, Matthew 4, 19. And it's all grace that Jesus now turns again to Peter and says, and John records it twice in verse 19 and verse 22, follow me. This reigning grace, this reigning grace to those who repent of their sins. Every, every Lord's Day, we, we, want you to be, we want you so much to be reminded of this, Christian. We know, we know we stumble. We know we all stumble in many ways. And that's not to make light of sin at all. It's to take it very seriously and deal with it rightly, with grace that reigns. And so we remind you as you come into the presence of God to, to, to fall upon your knees, confess any sin and your sinfulness and your shortfallings, and, and, and remember, thank God for his mercy. Confessing agreed with him, you fall short. And he gets up, you get up then, and in, 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 with the authority of Jesus Christ, an elder will stand here and declare to you, your sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ. Because grace reigns. Grace beats your sin. Grace beats your denials. Grace beats your shortcomings. Grace beats your lies and your lusts. Grace beats your... Every time... Every time we sin is, is another time, in, in essence, we're denying the lordship of Christ, isn't it? Grace beats it all. Grace reigns. And that's why we confess our faith. That's why we confess our sins. That's why we come boldly, as it says in the book of Hebrews, to the throne of grace. To receive mercy and help in our time of need. That's why. So here you are in this, as this gospel is declared, as this book of John has been laid out. Here you are. You heard it before, and you followed before. You stumbled. You denied. Just like Peter. And so I, I see over and over again that while John writes that this is for, um, so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I'm always reminded of the fact that most of the people reading the Gospel of John are Christians. Do Christians need the Gospel of John? Well, I do. You do. 
You need the gospel. You need the gospel preached to your heart and your soul every day. That's why we want you in the word every day. That's why God wants you in the word every day. You need the gospel every day. So it, let's see what happens here now. So think about this. I want you to notice how the profession, his profession of faith leads to mission. How profession of faith leads to mission. Or another way to think about this is what does it mean to love God? Peter will say three times, Lord, you know. You know that I love you. You know that I love you. And three times, immediately, Jesus directs him from that love to the mission he has called Peter to. He calls him to go and tend my sheep, or feed my sheep, or feed my lambs. He, he tells him to go and do what he, had, we had, what he had been creating these disciples to do, to go and be the shepherds of this new church under the great shepherd. He, he, he knew there, there is some sense that when Peter says, I'm going fishing, there's some sense that he's maybe returning to that vocation. I, I'm not, I'm not going to be the fishers of men anymore. I, I'm just going to go fish now. And Jesus makes sure that he doesn't catch anything and then has the miraculous catch a fish. And then, and then John says it's the Lord. And then, and then Peter girds himself, girds himself with his clothes and, and jumps in the water and swims to Jesus, beating everybody else there. He's going back. And now Jesus says to him, go do what I told you to do. And this is because a vertical love for God always has horizontal application. A vertical love for God always has a horizontal application. There, there are far too many people, and COVID brought this out. It, it's, it's terrible how, how much it's still lingering out there. People who think they can love Jesus and have nothing to do with the church. I can, just, I can just stay away from people. I can just love Jesus. That's like, that's like saying, um, I, I can love Jesus and despise his bride. That's like saying, I, I, I love the head, but I don't like the body at all. That, that's, like, that, that's like saying that you love Jesus, but you hate the church, that you, you, you hate his bride. And then second, Jesus had already taught this principle that being authentic disciples of his would be manifest by their love for one another. John 13, 35. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And third, John would make this principle explicitly clear in his epistle. In, in 1 John, in the epistle that John would write, most likely after the, this gospel, he, he writes, he says, if someone says, I love God like Peter did, and hates his brother, he's a liar. He's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? He who says, I love God and hates his brother is a liar. It, the two can't go hand in hand. They can't. To love God is to love his people. To love God is to love the things that God loves. To love Jesus is to love the people Jesus died for. Okay, so, so a vertical love for God always has a horizontal application, but, or and, the flip side of this is true as well. The motivation for serving others must come from one's love for Jesus and not simply a general love for all of humanity. Because if, if, your, if your love for people is, is not grounded, first of all, in your love for Christ, when the people love you, let you down, you'll stop loving them. 
When, 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 when the people turn against you, as they always do, then, then you, your, love, your love goes on and off like a switch based on the, their, their reactions or based on what you get out of it. You think you're doing it for the, your, your love for them. A general love for humanity always twists in this kind of direction over time. No, we love because he first loved us. All of, all of the commands of God flow from love because love is the first greatest commandment. The greatest commandment is not that you will obey the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. I, 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 think, it, I think that's what it says sometimes. I act like that's what it says sometimes. And then my walk with Christ gets very stale, gets very wooden, gets very, am I keeping the law? Because, you know, God said, obey me. Obey me with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Okay. Got to go love my wife again. Got to go respect my husband again. Got to go obey my dad again. Right? Instead of flowing out of, first of all, a love and devotion for Christ that has settled, I understand the great commandment to be this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Love him with everything you got. Jesus had this, brought this out when he's in Matthew 22 when a lawyer asked him a question, testing him, saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so again, we have the vertical demands the horizontal. The vertical brings forth the horizontal. On these two commandments, Jesus said, hang all of the law and the prophets. So our gaze upon Jesus in love and devotion is the great motivator for serving others. If you're having trouble serving others, if you're having trouble obeying God, or I should say when you're having trouble obeying God, this is one of the reasons you look to Jesus. And you make sure, what's your horizontal, what's going on horizontally between you and Jesus? What's going on horizontally between, I'm sorry, vertically, between you and God? Because that's affecting what's going on out here. You need to get this right. And getting this right is not just about... Um, it's not simply acknowledging him as Lord and King. It is doing so knowing that he is a benevolent Lord and King, a gracious Lord and King. He is one who rules with grace reigning. It's the only reason you know him. It's the only reason that you know he's Lord and King. It's the only reason you are able to have any understanding of what his law is all about is because of grace. Because of the grace that has been bestowed upon you. Our gaze upon Jesus in love and devotion is the great motivator for serving others. Peter's specific call was to be one of the shepherds of the sheep. The apostles who along with the Old Testament prophets would be the foundation of the church. Followed by the pastors who would pastor or shepherd. Pastor is just the word shepherd. That's, that's what the word is. That would shepherd the church. Peter would describe the work of faithful shepherds dec decades later. He understood, and he turned back, and he followed Jesus. Later on, he writes in his apostle, he says, shepherd the flock of God, as he's speaking to pastors, to the leaders of the churches. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. Now, how, how is it going to be not by compulsion, but, but willingly? 
Because you're, first of all, your devotion is going to be to the great shepherd. And then from the great shepherd, who you know has this kind of love for his people, you turn in that love to those people. So not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, because grace reigns, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So if we say that we love Jesus, he sets us and often resets us on our particular mission, the mission that he has given. And that mission may not be what, what, what we expected. Verses 17 and 19 again. Peter, um, Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And commenting about what would happen as Peter would now return to feeding his sheep. He says in verse 18, most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself. And by the way, that girded yourself is the same word when, Jesus, when it says he threw his garments back on him. He girded his garments back on him as he threw himself into the water. You girded yourself and walked where you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And then we know because of verse 19 that he's speaking of, the cru of, of Peter's crucifixion that would come. Peter would serve the Lord from this time, which is probably A.D. 30, till about A.D. 64, where under Nero's persecution, Peter was crucified in Rome for the gospel. Well, what might be your mission? So one of the things you have to remember is, really, when it comes down to the providence of God, the, a whole bunch of your mission is not like you get to choose especially in day-to-day -day affairs, right? That, that's, Jesus just said, he said, follow me. And Peter and you, none of us gets to say, well, what exactly do you mean by that? Like, what does that entail today? And I'll decide. Nope, Jesus says, follow me. Here we go. What does it mean to follow Jesus and to love Jesus? What might be your mission? Yes, Lord, I love you. Respect your husband. Yes, Lord, I love you. Love your wife as I love my bride. Yes, Lord, I love you. Honor your father and mother. Yes, Lord, I love you. Forsake that sin. Be done with it. Yes, Lord, I love you. Take up your cross. And follow me. There's only one thing that causes us to actually love God in this way. See, general love for humanity ain't going to work, is it? It's just not going to buy. It's not going to happen. There's only one thing that causes us to actually love God in this way. And that is the love of God for us. We love because he first loved us. Grace reigns. Declaring our love for God is celebrating his love for us. And celebrating his love for us manifests itself in loving the things God loves. Celebrating his love, his love for us. How do I celebrate his love for me? By loving the things that God loves. By loving the people that God loves. Now, 
this follow me, there's two dimensions to following Jesus, at least. Two dimensions that I want to mention here. One is more inward and one is more outward. One is more uh, uh, inward, devotional, with practical application. And, and the other is the risk. Like, maybe before you say you're going to follow me, you better count the cost, as he said one time. Count the cost. So there's two dimensions of following Jesus. To be a follower of Christ is to be a disciple that abides in his word. Listen to John 8, 31. Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, if you abide in me, you are my disciples indeed. So how do I know I'm a disciple? I'm a follower of Jesus. When's the last time you read the word? Are you a habitual eater of the word of God? Consuming it? Jesus says, if, if, you, if you abide in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And then you shall know the truth. And then the truth shall set you free. Word of God is that powerful. And it is what it means to follow Jesus. Because even in John 8, 12, it's, Jesus says these things. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You follow him by understanding who he is and what he has said and what he's telling us to do. You don't follow him in just some kind of ethereal way in your heart. Abiding in his word sets us free to the walk in the light, to know what he would have us do and how to do it. Learning from Christ in his word by his spirit then also brings rest and contentment to our souls. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I've told you this before, but this yoke that he's referring to, the kind of yoke that he is referring to is a, it's a double yoke. If you had a, a well-trained ox and then you had a new one that needed to be trained, you put the new young one and connect it to the yoke, taking the yoke of the mature ox on, and then the, the, the mature ox would lead and train and teach the young where to go. Jesus says, take my yoke upon me, and you'll learn from me. You'll, you'll walk where I walk. You'll follow me. You'll do what I do. You'll love what I love. And so to be a follower of Christ is to be a disciple that abides in his word, that abides in his teaching, that yokes ourselves to him, to see the light and see according to light the way in which we should go. And secondly, to be a follower of Christ then requires us to follow him to the cross, to deny ourselves just as he emptied himself, just as he um, did not did not for the, the glory that was his abandon the calling of God, but instead humbled himself and even to, even to the point of death on the cross. So he says to you, follow me, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. Luke 9 says, Then he said to them, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and I chose this, this version here because Luke says this. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Forever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So it requires us to make any changes in our lives that the Lord commands, any. 
Anything that the Lord commands for you to forsake, you must forsake. Anything that the Lord commands you to do from his word, you must do. It, it requires of you to deny yourself and instead take up the cross and follow Jesus. Now, again, you're not going to be able to do that unless you understand that Jesus did it, and he did it because he loves you, because he atoned for your sin, because he, he grants you his righteousness, his spirit, and his love for the things that he loves. And only in that way are we able to then really follow. That's what Peter's learning here. That's what Peter's learning in this, in this word, in this, uh, in, in this prophecy that Jesus is giving about what's going to happen. It means being willing to gladly accept any calling the Lord may have for us, believing that whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. But this following of Jesus also leads to two challenges that really are right here in our text. The first is the necessity to deny our own story, the story of how things ought to be according to us in our lives. All of us have this. You know, we all have this in our, we all have what we believe to be the picture perfect story. This is how, this is how my story is supposed to go. Look, okay, so I was a sinner and then I followed Jesus and I, I'm pretty good, I'm a pretty good Christian. So now here's what should happen. Here's what should happen with my, my vocations. Here's what should happen with my relationships. Here's what should, what should happen with my pension. Here's what should happen with on and on and on, right? And then that's not how the story goes, Sometimes in really big ways. Health. Lost children. Loss of job. Natural disasters that come upon people and the results. Sometimes the story does not go anywhere near. But also sometimes the story doesn't go in simple little ways. You, you miss the yellow light. It's red again. And you're five minutes late for work already. And then the guy cuts in front of you. This is not the story I wanted, right? It's oftentimes the little ways that we get the, to practice, I think, for the bigger ones. And so following Jesus means a denial of your own story and a submission to the story he is writing. And not just submission to the story that he is writing, but submission to the story that he is writing, believing it's a better story. And nobody does that unless God grants faith. Not just faith in Jesus, whatever that means. Faith in the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ to reign over you with grace all the way to the end. So that Paul in, in 2 Corinthians could even write, when I'm, I'm going through all these afflictions and I cry out to, to the Lord and I, I ask him to remove the afflictions, he says, my grace is, God says, my grace is sufficient for you. And then Paul goes on to write this glorious exaltation in the grace of God that is enough in the midst of all afflictions, all trials, all difficulties. Oh, would God grant us faith. I, I think that's much of what is meant in 2031. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Peter couldn't believe in, this, in Jesus' story that he would have to go to Jerusalem, suffer, and die. 
he, he's the one who stood against Jesus when Jesus said um, over and over again, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, and I'm going to, and I'm going to be crucified. And, and Peter's like, no, you're not. No, we're not letting that happen. Stop talking like that. And then Peter gets rebuked as, as Satan. Get behind me, Satan. We're not writing our stories. We're writing God's story. Peter's told to feed Jesus' sheep and that he will need to do so even in the face of deadly persecution. So God's story for us is not fixed on us getting what we think is best, but rather on what is forming us into what God wants us to become, built and grown up into the image of Jesus. Give up on your story, people, and follow his. Give up on your story and follow his. The second challenge to following Jesus is this. The second challenge is just as deadly, at least for our joy in the Lord. It is the challenge of sidelong glances, of comparing our story or the story that God is writing for us to someone else's story. And here we have it in verses 20 through 22. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And then he has to go on and explain because probably this, this is carried, this, is, this has become um, a bad rumor that like John's never going to die. But Jesus didn't say he wasn't going to die. He just, he's just making a statement. If, if, if he was to remain until I come again, and we can debate whether that meant until the fall of Jerusalem or till the second coming, but that's really not the point. The, the point is, it's none of your business. <laughs> and a whole bunch of people missed it. And so now they're, they're making these uh, testimonies as to whether or not John was ever going to die or something miraculous was going to happen. Totally missing the point. The point is that we are often satisfied or at least okay with our situation until we see what someone else gets. What, what would have happened if Peter had said, what about this guy? And the Lord said, oh, it's going to be so much worse for him. And Peter's going, Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right? Instead, Peter, he says, he said, it's, it's really none of your business. It should have nothing to do. What I'm going to take you through versus what I'm going to take somebody else through should have nothing to do with your loyalty to me. Nothing. No comparing. No comparing families. No comparing marriages. No comparing. None of it. Stop it. No comparing bank accounts. No comparing health status. How many things else? What else can I add? Jesus says, stop it. He does. It's none of your business. I have a story for you, Jesus says. It's a good story. Believe me, follow me. Believe me, follow me. This is the sin of envy and covetousness, and it ruins our joy and leads to bitterness. It is a great temptation for you towards your siblings, kids. <laughs> Dinner's over. Don't usually get dessert on Thursday nights. And it, mom brings out the pie and cuts up a slice of your favorite pie and gives you a slice. Special. This is special. Dad's want to make you a pie. Here, you have a piece. You're like, oh, I got dessert tonight. This is wonderful. She cuts another piece for your brother, sets it down next to your brother. It's like twice as big. 
hey, that's, hey, that's not fair. What happened to your piece of pie? It just became tasteless. That's what happens to your life too, doesn't it? This glorious piece of pie. Blessings, more, more blessings in your life than you could ever finish counting. Yeah, but look what she got. But, but look what he has. But look, look what they got. And all of a sudden, your life, which could taste so wonderful, becomes bitter. Tastes awful. The pie didn't change. The slice of pie didn't change. Your envy killed it. Your envy ruined it. And so, siblings, or to many others in the same situations that you're in, vocationally, family, time of life, health, etc., envy works like this. It doesn't matter what you get. It matters what the other guy gets that you don't get. That's how envy works. It doesn't matter what you get. It matters what the other guy gets that you don't get. One author says that this must be fought with the witty principle. What is that to you? Pack it away. What is that to you? We cannot begin to count the things that Jesus did in those three years of ministry, says verse 25, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so during the years of ministry, John is saying, there's so many more things that I could write about. It's like the world couldn't even contain it all. And that was just the three years. What's, been Jesus, what's Jesus been doing ever since? Reigning in his gracious glory over heaven and earth and over you. But here you are, and his grace is overwhelming. Do you need to experience that kind of reconciliation that Peter enjoyed? Maybe he's calling, he has, he has a calling for you. He has a specific calling for you that you need to hear. And, and, and he has one that is, that, that's for you and not for someone else. Remember the witty principle. If you, if you come in that way, then you come to the fire of coals and, you, and you're dealt with by Jesus. He has breakfast for you. The Lord is not more gracious to Peter than he is to you. The Lord is not more gracious to Peter than he is to you. And you are invited always to come to Jesus, to be forgiven and fed, and to become a people who then forgive and feed. His call to you is simply this, follow me. Heavenly Father, and so deal with each one of us with the grace and truth that reigns in Jesus Christ. Establish each one of us here in faith. Grant true repentance to all who hear. And in this reconciliation, let us take up our crosses and follow you with faith, with joy, like Peter and like the faithful over the centuries who loved and lived for you. Let us be like him, like Peter, like the apostles, like the faithful that have come before us, living and loving you. In Jesus' name, amen. Number 665, let's stand.